So as Paul mentioned, we are in the season of Christmas. And of course, I think all of us pretty well realize that the church doesn't operate according to the time schedule uh, of the world. Betty Jo and I happened to go to Costco yesterday, and we both noticed and remarked on the fact that all of the goodies and treats and Christmas stuff that, you, that was staged right by the entrance, so you saw it as you walked by, that's all been replaced now with exercise equipment. So, uh, because for the world, Christmas is over and it's time to start thinking about diets and reducing after the, what, what we're pleased now to call the holidays season. So the world has its timetable. We have ours. And for us, this is Christmas. We're in the 12 days of Christmas. This is the third day of Christmas. And it was a time of feasting um, in the Middle Ages in particular when Advent was actually a fasting time. It was sort of like Lent. And then once Christmas Day came, beginning with Christmas Eve, and then for the 12 days of Christmas... Uh, there would be great feasting going on. And many of the feasts were associated with saints uh, throughout the history of the church. So yesterday, December 26th, was the feast of Stephen, St. Stephen, the first Christian martyr. That was the day, if you remember the carol, Good King Wenceslas looked out and saw the snow deep and crisp and even. And uh, tomorrow, the 28th, The fourth day of Christmas is the Feast of the Holy Innocents. It's a pointer toward the darkest of all the Christmas stories, the one Matthew tells in chapter 2. We're going to be looking at Matthew 2 for these two weeks of Christmas, but we're going to do it in reverse order, starting with the last half of the chapter and then saving the wise men, the Magi, for next Sunday, Epiphany Sunday, the Sunday of Light. So let's listen to the dark side of Christmas. A reading from Matthew 2. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I will call my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth, 
so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be Thanks to God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Esther. So this is the first story after the birth of the child. It's a story of an atrocity, a kind of act of genocide. Murderous King Herod, Herod the Great. We'll talk more about him next Sunday and the Magi and that whole interaction, that beautiful story that we love. Uh, but for today, we're focusing on the aftermath. When Herod, realizing that somehow or other these Magi have sniffed out his intentions and have gone off by a different route and uh, not wound back through Jerusalem to report as he had asked them to, uh, Herod determines he's going to take extreme measures to get rid of this potential rival to his throne. And this incidentally is completely consistent with what we know about Herod's character from historical sources. Uh, again, I don't want to say everything there is to say about Herod, but Herod was a a brutal, cruel, vicious ruler who was consistently worried about his place and position. He owed uh, his kingdom, really, to connections that he had in Rome. He was acquainted with the Caesars. And so uh, that's what enabled him to rule over Judea, though he wasn't naturally Jewish by birth. Uh, One commentator says... Actually, ethnically, he was Arabic. Culturally, he was Greek. Religiously, he was Jewish. And politically, he was Roman. So he's this, this rather mixed bag uh, of cosmopolitanism with a veneer of the Jewish religion over it. And uh, he's known to have killed a number of his own sons when he thought they might be a threat to his hold on power. He was known as Herod the Great because of his grandiose building projects, including uh, completing finally the temple in Jerusalem, mostly for his own namesake, his own reputation. So he discovers that he's been outwitted by the Magi, and he sends orders uh, to, well, let's just kill all of them up to the age of two, just in case. Um, He was born earlier than I realized. But Joseph is warned and he takes his family. He escapes by night, slipping away, and the Son of God becomes a refugee. A refugee. Fleeing to Egypt, where they stay for some length of time until Joseph's told it's okay, Herod's dead. Uh, They had been living in Bethlehem apparently for some time because they were in a house by the time the Magi visited, not the stable anymore. Uh, So all those Christmas scenes where the shepherds are ranged along one side and the wise men on the other adoring the child and the baby, well, that's not the story the Bible tells. Uh, it's, It's possible that Joseph had decided just to relocate to Bethlehem once they had gone there. Um... That's where Jesus was born, of course. He was a carpenter. 
and could find work, presumably. Maybe they rented a house. They found a place where they could stay and settle down. And perhaps Joseph was thinking, well, why not we just live in Bethlehem, our ancest- my ancestral home? But once they flee and are told they can return, Joseph is also warned that there's a new Herod on the throne, the son of the old one, and he's just as bad. So Joseph decides to make his way back to Galilee, and they settle in Nazareth. And thus Jesus is known throughout his life as Jesus of Nazareth, not Jesus of Bethlehem. People needed uh, to be distinguished somehow. They didn't have surnames in first century Palestine. Uh, And there were many of of the same names that were used commonly, including Jesus was a very common name. It was Joshua or Yeshua in Hebrew. So usually uh, they would append the the place where they were from, like Mary Magdalene, Mary of Magdala, to distinguish her from the many Marys. If we were doing that today, I'd be Dave of Grand Rapids. Our pastor would be John of Dayton. Uh, So Jesus is not Jesus Christ. No one ever called him Jesus Christ. Christ was his title, And it came about that it seemed to be his second name only uh, when the gospel had spread into a Greek-speaking Roman world and they misunderstood the significance of Messiah or anointed one or Christos in Greek. So he became Jesus Christ. But during his life, he was always Jesus of Nazareth. So that's the story and I don't know about you, but the first thing it does for me is raise questions. What, what kind of a gospel is this? What, wait a minute. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. He's the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And you ask, where's the peace? It's this... Sad, sad story of people having to run away from murder and genocide. And they bounce around for a while in Egypt as foreigners. How'd they ever live there? Maybe Joseph found work again. Maybe he wasn't allowed. I don't know. You know how rules are about refugees. No work permit. And they end up in Nazareth. Nazareth in the New Testament was the equivalent of Podunkville, wherever. It was nowhere. In fact, the Jewish historian Josephus lists uh, the towns, the principal towns and villages even of, of Galilee. He doesn't even mention Nazareth. It may not even have been its own place. It was just a, a kind of a neighborhood <laughs> attached to a more important place. So to call Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, as, as Nathaniel would say when he met him in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, can anything good come from Nazareth? What? The Messiah is from Nazareth? It's like saying he's from Borculo <laughs> or someplace. No offense if you're watching from Borculo. I love Borculo. A small place, in other words, insignificant. Not Jesus of Jerusalem, not even Jesus of Bethlehem, Jesus of Nazareth. And I also wonder, what's God up to? I mean, couldn't he have stopped Herod 
from doing that thing? And the whole problem of evil breaks out again. We see it over and over. Why does God allow atrocities to happen? He warned Joseph. Why didn't he warn Joseph's neighbor? Why didn't he warn all the dads in and around Bethlehem so they could escape with their little baby boys? Martin Luther, in one of his Christmas sermons, points out really the craziness of this whole story. I mean the whole thing, not just this hard-to-understand story. What's it doing in, in, the, in the Bible? But the whole deal. And he has this wonderful passage about uh, God's surprising and perplexing ways. Why does he do such preposterous things, Luther asks. He puts a babe in a crib. Our common sense revolts and says, could not God have saved the world some other way? I would not have sent an angel. I would simply have called in the devil and said, let my people go. The Christian faith is foolishness. It says that God can do anything and yet makes him so weak that either his son had no power and wisdom or else the whole story is made up. Surely the God who in the beginning said, let there be light, let there be a firmament, let the dry land appear, could have said to the devil, give me back my people, my Christians. God does not even send an angel to take the devil by the nose. He sends, as it were, an earthworm lying in weakness, helpless without his mother. And he suffers him to be nailed to a cross. And then in his weakness and infirmity, he crunches the devil's back and alters the whole world. He suffered himself to be trodden underfoot of man, to be crucified, and through weakness, he takes the power and the kingdom. That's the story of Christmas. That's the story of the gospel itself. That's the story of our God in the world. Through his weakness, he takes the power and casts down evil. And in the end, will crush the devil's head. But we may also want to ask, what's this all about? What's going on here? What is Matthew trying to tell us by telling the story the way he does? And I think there are two great truths uh, that are revealed in the details of the story as we read it. The first truth is this. In the midst of a world that seems to be simply a succession of random events, a chaotic place where nothing seems to have much meaning or purpose, where evil seems to win out time after time, God is actually in control. God is there all the time. History, uh, the skeptics like to say history, well, it, it's meaningless. It's just one thing after another. There's no pattern to it. There's no purpose in anything. We live for a few short 
ultimately meaningless years. We strive for pleasure or love or place or position or power, and then we lose it all and we're gone and it doesn't matter anymore. The wind passes over it and it is gone and the place thereof shall know it no more. The Bible, too, can express this viewpoint under the sun, life under the sun. But to the gospel writer, God is at work in and through everything. That's the significance of all these quotes from the prophecies. Matthew 1 and 2 are full of them. If you're familiar with the Bible, and you may be, or even if you're just familiar with this part of the Christmas story, you'll find that Matthew, again and again, four times in chapters 1 and 2, he quotes from specific individual prophets. Famously in chapter 1 from Isaiah, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us from Isaiah 7. Then, in the story we'll look at next week, Lord willing, uh, there's a quotation from Micah chapter 5. The Magi come to Jerusalem, naturally enough, looking for the newborn king. Where else would they go? But to the capital, to Herod's palace. And Herod sends for the scribes and Pharisees because though he's sort of a Jew, he's not really into the Bible all that much. Rulers rarely are. Uh, And so he sends for the authorities, the theologians, the preachers, and they say, oh yes, we know about the Messiah. He's going to be born in Bethlehem because it says so in Micah 5. And you, Bethlehem, are not least among the cities of Judah, for out of you shall come a prince to rule my people. And then, a third quotation uh, from Hosea chapter 11, in verse 15. Out of Egypt I called my son. Originally, in Hosea, it's the Lord speaking through the prophet about the Exodus. um, When God, of course, delivers the children of Israel, from their bondage in Egypt and calls them to come up to the promised land. And then, uh, when the children are slaughtered by Herod's stormtroopers, this haunting quotation from the prophet Jeremiah, uh, the, the actual atrocity isn't described, but in restrained language, Matthew says, that uh, he ordered the killing of all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men. And Matthew adds, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Those haunting words from Jeremiah. So, again, a little bit of the Old Testament background. It's more obscure, and perhaps you're not recalling all these details or you're not that familiar with the, the Old Testament. But Rachel was Jacob's younger, more loved wife, the mother of Joseph, 
the one for whom he served an extra seven years. And she had difficulty conceiving, and finally she bore Joseph, who was Jacob's favorite. And then, uh, sometime later, she became pregnant again. And as they were traveling near Bethlehem, just outside Bethlehem, she went into labor and died in childbirth. And as she died, she named her baby Ben-Oni, son of my sorrow. So Rachel is associated with sorrow and weeping and the death of a baby. Later, Jacob chose to call his youngest Ben-Yamin, son of my right hand, Benjamin. But centuries later, Jeremiah picks up on that story and he personifies the grief of the people of Judah as their country is destroyed by invading armies from Babylon and the people are either slaughtered or carried away captive and he prophetically hears again the sound of Rachel's weeping. Weeping for unspeakable loss and sorrow. And now Matthew for the third time, here's the echo of that weeping, weeping in the night. All the sorrows of the world, all the sorrows of life and loss are expressed in that prophetic word. So, nevertheless, God has seen it all. He has not only overseen these unfolding events somehow in ways we can't understand, sometimes we can't even accept. Nevertheless, he's there. He's with us. He is Emmanuel still, even in the night, even in the sorrow. And he's foretold it so that we can be sure that what happens in our lives isn't just a series of random absurdities, but is part of his good plan for me, for those I love, for my church, for my world, for my society. So that's the first thing we learn from the story. Bad as it is, it's not random. God hasn't somehow gone to sleep. He hasn't left his post. You know, most of the world uh, actually believes one of two things about God. Either it's all just a, a story. As Luther said, it's all made up. There is no God. There is no meaning. Or they believe he's so distant, so uninvolved. Yeah, maybe he started the whole thing going in the beginning, but he doesn't really dirty his hands in what goes on down here. But Bible people believe that despite whatever things may appear, God is at work. God is fulfilling his purpose. God has a plan and it's unfolding even as we can't see it. The other great lesson of this story is told in the geography. Dale Bruner, a wonderful uh, biblical commentator who has written a magisterial two-volume commentary on Matthew, calls Uh, this story, theological geography. So the emphasis 
I don't know if you noticed it, is on the places. And we move from place to place, from Jerusalem to Bethlehem to Egypt to Nazareth. And at each point, the experience, the life of the child is recapturing something of the history of the people of God in the Old Testament. So, like baby Moses, Jesus, the infant, is wonderfully spared. His life is saved even when the other boy babies around him are being killed. Like David, the king, he's born in Bethlehem, the city of David, as it would become. And he, too, is a king in the line of David. Like Joseph, he's sent down from Canaan into Egypt because of the hostility of those around him. And like the children of Israel, he comes back out of Egypt, called by God back to the promised land. See, the point that Matthew wants us to understand is not just that Jesus fulfills these prophecies or that the Old Testament points toward him. His point is that Jesus is the Old Testament. Jesus is Israel, the new Israel. And in his life and person, he recapitulates the whole story. It's all about him. Everything points to him, not just the words of the prophets, but the experiences and actions of the people, the lives of the famous Old Testament leaders. They're all fulfilled in him. Jesus is the one. That's what Matthew wants us to understand. He's the one. See, God, this plan that God is, is all about, it's a plan for the blessing of the world. It's a plan for a new creation. It's a plan for the fulfillment of all the promises that he's ever made to any of us. They're all, yes, in Jesus. They're all fulfilled in him. It's a plan that began with the call of Abraham from Ur of the Chaldees and God's promise that through you and through your seed, all the nations would be blessed. It's a plan that involved the calling of Israel to be a light to the nations, but Israel failed in its missions. Israel turned inward, it turned against the nations. And so Israel, in its disobedience and idolatry, was, was chastised and went into exile, and a remnant returned. And so God would renew his promises to the remnant, and through them would come one who eventually would bring all things to pass. That's the story. That's what Matthew wants us to understand. Don't look for another. <laughs> Don't be fooled by appearances. Jesus is the one. Jesus of Nazareth. That's the last quote, actually. Uh, we can see it again. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth, no wordsville. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Interestingly, nobody knows where that is in the prophets. <laughs> if you look closely at your Bible, and it's a Bible with notes, 
you'll notice that all the other quotations in Matthew 1 and 2 are footnoted and we're told the reference. This is where they're from. This quote has no footnote because scholars have been looking ever since it was written for where that is in the Old Testament and they can't seem to find a place where it says he would be called a Nazarene. They've come up with some suggestions. Maybe it's a play on the word Nazarite, one dedicated to God. Maybe it's a play on the Hebrew word for branch, which is in Isaiah. But Jesus of Nazareth, somehow it's there, but it's so obscure (laughs) that we don't know where. And yet this is the name that he would bear. This is the name that would be nailed above his head on the cross. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Thing is, it's it's easy to scoff at that. A king on a cross? A king in a manger? A king on the run? And yet, for those with faith to see, he's the one. There's a little tag that I like from a medieval Christmas message. Who he is and from whom he came and at what price he redeemed thee and why he made thee and gave thee all things, do thou consider. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we love you. We confess you are the King of the world. You are the Lord of glory. You are the savior of the world. And in our darkness, we pray, shine your light. Help us to live in such a way as we put on the armor of light that others would see and like the magi would be drawn to worship you. We pray it for the glory of your name. Amen.